Hi there, good morning. Yes, my name is Andy. I do lead the online campus. And I wanna make sure that I stop and say hi to those that are joining us through the online campus, whether it's at Facebook Live or if you're joining us through our website or through the Crossroads Now app. Hi, it's great to see you all again. And then for those of you that are here on the Newburgh campus and in the room, I wanna make sure I welcome you as well. Uh, Ryan is actually one of our volunteers from the online campus. So this is like an online campus takeover weekend, kind of just got us going here. But uh, yeah, the past few weeks, it's been awesome um, to, to listen as we've been studying this sermon series called People of a Faithful God. And throughout this series, as we've studied the lives of Abraham and Nehemiah and Daniel, um, we've seen how God is faithful to his promises and to his covenants. And we've heard this word covenant quite a bit. And I thought before I get started in the book of Ruth today, it might be nice to just kind of look a little more closely at this word covenant and then look at a few of the major biblical covenants so we have a good understanding of what those are. And you'll see how Ruth plays into all of those, okay? Now, it can be tempting for us to think of as a, co a covenant as simply a contract, right? This is the 21st century. We're very familiar with contracts when it comes to, you know, signing loans, um, whether you're like launching an LLC, if you're an entrepreneur, or if, if you're a CEO, you work, on, you work with contracts as far as working between other business providers, right? So a contract, it, it can be, it can be a, a legal arrangement between two people, but it can also be between a, a person and a business entity. A covenant though, is actually, it spells out a relationship with, it, with two people. Okay, a covenant's a little bit different than a contract, okay? So a covenant is more than just a legally binding agreement. Well, I mean, if, if your marriage was just a legally binding agreement, that's a little shallow, isn't it? You know, a covenant is much deeper than that. So the marriage covenant is one covenant that we're familiar with today. Now, these biblical covenants are actually, uh, they define the relationship between people and God, okay? So let's put those up on the screen. There's five that I wanna talk about today, just real quickly. I'm just gonna give some basics of each one of these. Now, the first one that we'll talk about is Noah's, the covenant that God made with Noah, right? This is immediately following the flood. And this is where uh, God says, I'm not gonna destroy the earth again with a flood. And that's the basic tenet of this covenant that he made with Noah. And the sign of this covenant is a rainbow. All right, now the next covenant that we see is God's covenant with Abraham, okay? Now God's covenant with Abraham was a little different. He, he said, Abraham, I'm gonna make you into a people, your, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. Phil talked about this in the first week of this series. He said, I'm gonna give you a land for your people to inherit. And then he said that all of the world will be blessed through you, all right? Now the sign of this covenant was circumcision. I was gonna put pictures up of each of the different biblical signs of these covenants, but you gotta draw the line when it comes to that, right? So, um, so yeah, so we won't do that. But uh, circumcision was the sign of that covenant. The next covenant is the one that God gave to the Israelites through Moses at Mount Sinai. Now, a lot of times we think of this in the form of those 10 commandments, the two tablets, right, of stone with, with five commandments each on them. But know this, the, the law of Moses actually contains 613 laws, okay? So I, I wonder how that conversation went when God's like, hey, I'm, I've got this law. I wanna give it to you. No, I'm gonna write it on stone. There's 613 of them. And Moses is like, slow your roll, God. Uh, 
can I just get like a top 10 or something, you know? So that's what he did. He gave him 10, but there's really 613 laws found within that Mosaic covenant. Now, the next covenant that we see is God's covenant with David. This is found in 2 Samuel 7. And this is where God tells David, hey, your son is gonna rule on the throne after you and he's gonna build me a temple. He didn't allow David to build him a temple. He had his son Solomon do it. But then he also made this promise. He said, a member of your family will rule forever on the throne. So as you picture this covenant, you know, picture that throne, all right? And that's the covenant that God made with David. That's the Davidic covenant. And then the final covenant that you see on the slide is the new covenant. The new covenant is described in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 31. And this new covenant is brought on actually through the death of Jesus Christ. It, there's a couple key promises, a couple key tenets within it that I'll mention right now. And one of those is provision for forgiveness of sins, right? And then the other is the restoration of mankind's relationship with God. Those are found within the new covenant. And for a picture of this new covenant, think of the cup, the chalice that Jesus had during that last supper where he had the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood, right? So for this covenant, picture that cup of Jesus's blood, that cup of wine that represented his blood. So we've laid these five covenants out for you. And, you see, and you've got to understand just a little bit about each of these covenants in order to understand the framework of this greater story that is the biblical narrative, this bigger story of God and us, okay? Now, we'll see how Ruth actually plays a role in each one of these covenants too. Um, now, let's start in verse one of chapter one of Ruth, okay? It says in verse one, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, to, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. So the author, the narrator starts to, he sets up the setting of this story, right? He says, basically, when it took place first, it says during the time of when the judges ruled. And if you're familiar with the book of Judges, the book of Judges is full of some really wild, like ups and downs. And, and these occurred because the people of Israel would either follow God's law in accordance with the Mosaic covenant, or they would refuse to follow and they would go through really horrible times. They would, they would be overrun by the nations around them. They would chase after other gods. And, and that's where you see like these times of famine and things like that, that happened throughout the book of Judges. There's these highs and these lows. And really you see that throughout the remainder of the Old Testament, right? And that's where uh, last week when Phil talked about Daniel, he was speaking about Deuteronomy chapter 28. That's where God lays out, you know, these are the blessings if you obey or if you participate fully in this covenant with me. And then these are the curses if you fail to uphold the laws within this covenant, all right? So that's where, that's when this takes place, is during that time of judges, okay? And then the place is the land. The land is the promised land, right? It's Israel, as God promised in his covenant with Abraham. Now we also see mention of Bethlehem. That's a, a village in Judah, right? A territory within Israel. And we see Moab. And Moab is actually a country to the east of the Jordan River or across the Dead Sea, depending on how far south you are, all right? And Moab is kind of a, it's a hated, a despised country of the Israelites. They, they did not get along. There's centuries of bad blood between these countries, but that's where this man took his family, right? And, and Speaking of him, we meet these first characters, the nameless man, his wife, and his two children, right? Now, in verse two, we're given their names. 
The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. So as we're given the names of, these family, of this family, you've got to understand throughout the book of Ruth, names give us little story clues. They're real important throughout this book. So one of the names that we see here in this verse is Naomi. She's the man's wife, right? Naomi means pleasant or delightful. We also see the names Malon and Kilian. These names, not quite as cool. Malon means sickly and Kilian literally means disease. So this man's sons were named sickness and disease, all right? And then the man himself, his name was Elimelech. Now, Elimelech means my God is king. Now, through the Mosaic covenant, the way it's written, Israel was set up to be a theocracy. God was to be their king, right? So in um, Exodus 19, 6, it says, there'd be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And Elimelech's name is a reminder of this, all right? Now, again, we see the statement that Elimelech left Bethlehem and he went to Moab. So Bethlehem means house of bread, Okay, so bread throughout the Bible is symbolic of God's provision. So, God, so Elimelech left the place of God's provision and he went to the land of Moab, all right? Elimelech, he, he lost sight of the fact that God was his provider, that God was the source of his provision. Again, if we go back to the law in Leviticus chapter 25, it says, the land that you're in must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. The Israelites were stewards of God's property. Everything they had was given to them by God. Now, in our own lives, losing track of our source of provision, right? This is... A, a trap that's very easily to fall into. It's easy to forget that we're stewards of the blessings that God has given us. And we can start to grasp on too tightly to things that we don't wanna let go of, or we can chase after things, situations, you know, people that are not in line with God's will for our life. Basically what we're doing is we're trying to become our own king. We're trying to become our own God. It's pretty fascinating actually. Uh, as I was studying this, I, I, I was reading some of the books from some of the Jewish sages too. And Elimelech's name means, you know, God is king. But if uh, some of the sages pronounce it differently, they say Eliamelech, and that means kingship is due me. So Elimelech, when they say it that way, it, this is one of the reasons that he left Bethlehem is he was saying, I can provide for myself. You know, he was stepping outside of the land of God's provision and going to provide for his family on his own. And then in verse three, we immediately see the results of his actions. It says, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malan and Killian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So now we're in verse three and the story's already like taking this left turn, right? We thought we were reading a story about Elimelech, about this man and his family. And in verse three, he's dead. So now the focus, it shifts to Naomi, right? And then there's two new characters that are introduced to us as well. And their names are Ruth and Orpah. And Ruth, her name means friend. And Orpah's name has, has a couple meanings. One is gazelle, but then another is it describes the back of your neck. 
All right, that's the Orpah. So um, you'll see that comes into play here in just a moment. Now in the following verses, you know, Naomi, Naomi and, and Orpah and, and Ruth, Naomi learns that the situation in Bethlehem has improved. So they gather up their household they, and they're gonna hit the road. They're gonna go back to Bethlehem. But the moment they hit the road, Naomi turns to her two daughters-in-law and she says, hey, go home and, and return to your mothers. And both women refuse. So Naomi insists. There's this kind of like famous little line of things where she, she says, I, look, I can't provide for you. I can't supply sons for you to marry. I'm too old to marry again. And, and even if I did, you would never wait around long enough for these guys to grow up to being marrying age, right? So she says in verse 13, no, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. So after hearing this, Orpah holds true to her name. She shows Naomi the back of her neck. She goes home, she leaves, right? But it says that Ruth clung to Naomi. So Ruth stayed and Naomi tries one last time to, to get her to leave. And she says, hey, look what your sister has, has done. Your sister-in-law has done. Do as she did, return to your family. But Ruth then makes this famous, it's a, it's a promise, it's a declaration. It's really, it's an oath. And she says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I'll go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So after hearing this, I mean, what can Naomi do? She caves in and uh, her and Ruth, they return to Bethlehem. But as you continue reading through the story, when they return to Bethlehem, the women in the city are shocked when they see Naomi. They say, can this be Naomi, right? So when Naomi left Bethlehem, you gotta remember, she was married to this man, Elimelech. Apparently Elimelech was a man of means. And and she also had two sons. By the standards of the day, uh, Naomi was living a blessed life. Like she was doing really well when she left Bethlehem. When she came back, she came back with nothing. In fact, she pretty much came back with less than nothing because the person she had with her was a Moabites, a member of a despised nation, right? So Naomi says to the women, don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So she's like, don't call me pleasant. My life has been a mess. I'm bitter, call me bitter, right? Well, if you continue reading the last sentence, the last portion of this chapter ends with kind of this nifty little glimmer of hope. I like it. It says, as the, they, they arrived in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And this is really an important phrase in the story because this shows the return of God's provision to the land of Israel. It shows hope for Naomi and hope for Ruth, right? Hope really for all of Israel. And then chapter two, as we get to there, it begins with a little bit of foreshadowing. It says, hey, there's this guy named Boaz that lived in the city and he was a member of Elimelech's clan and Boaz was a man of wealth. So that's the first verse of that chapter. And then the next verse, Ruth goes to Naomi and she says, hey, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna gather food for us. And God, again, in his law, has set up provision for the poor in Israel. The the people, as they were gleaning their fields, were told not to glean all the way to the edges of their fields. 
They were supposed to glean the central part, but leave the edges in the corners so that the poor could come along and then they would gather the grain in those places. And then that way they could provide for their families. That's the way that God provided for the poor through his law, through his promises to the people of Israel, right? Now, um, Ruth, she immediately puts this plan into action. She goes out, she starts gathering grain. In verse three, it says, as it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Well, as it turned out means coincidentally, right? It means it just so happened. But as we've been studying this series, we've seen God's not a God of coincidence, right? God's a God of covenant. And if you look at throughout the book of Ruth, you can see God's hand at work through all of this. Now, it's important though that this phrase is here because it lets us know that Ruth didn't go to Boaz's field as part of some kind of a scheme. Like she didn't know that Boaz could eventually become like her kinsman redeemer. We'll hear about that in a moment. She just was gathering grain in the field. It just so happened that the field belonged to Boaz. Well, Boaz didn't know Ruth either. When he got there, he asked his workers, who is this lady? And, and he, he notes that she's working very hard. And they say, oh, that's the Moabites that came with Naomi. They didn't even give her name. They just say, that's the Moabites that came with Naomi. Uh, she's been here gathering behind us all day. So Boaz goes to talk to her. And, and he says, hey, you know what? The work that you've done, your commitment to Naomi has been noted in the city. And he says this to her, may the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. So Boaz not only prays like a blessing over Ruth, he also recognizes within this that God is the true source of provision. So we have Boaz set up in contrast to Elimelech right here. And, and Boaz tells Ruth, you know, um, don't gather grain in any other field. Stay with my workers. I'll make sure that you stay safe. And he said, in fact, come and share lunch with us. She goes, she shares lunch with him. She squirrels a little away for later, right? She puts some leftovers in her pocket and then finishes her work day. When she goes home that day, she's gathered so much grain that when she walks in the door, Naomi is shocked. She's like, whoa, where did you work today? And, and Ruth, this is how I see the conversation. She's like, well, chill out, sit down. Eat some dinner first, and I'll tell you as we eat, right? So she gives her her, her leftovers, a little crumpled because they're in her pocket, but she gives her her leftovers. And as she's sharing with her, she says, I worked in the field of Boaz today. And Naomi says, whoa, Boaz is, is from Elimelech's clan. Boaz could be one of our kinsmen redeemers. And a kinsman redeemer is yet another Law, it's, it's, it's found in the same part, Leviticus 25, that the verse earlier was. Uh, and it, and it, what a kinsman redeemer does, this concept of the kinsman redeemer is that, that this person, if a family member in Israel that had some land were to become poor and unable to care for that land, or if the man were to die, the kinsman redeemer could, stand, could step in, purchase the land, hold it for the family for a certain number of years. They could use it. But uh, the money then would go to that poor family. They would be able to at least begin to, to care for their family. In the case of a deceased relative, the kinsman redeemer would actually marry the widow of the deceased man and then provide an heir that could eventually take over and would inherit that land. So the land would in perpetuity stay within that family. That's all provided for, again, within God's law. Naomi is telling uh, Ruth, hey, Boaz could play that role for, for our family. And then she says, don't work in anybody else's fields. Do what Boaz said. And then the last verse in verse 23, it says, so Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. 
So again, there's like this little glimmer of hope because again, we see Ruth holding true to her commitment to Naomi here, right? Now, in chapter three, Naomi gets up and she decides it's time to make sure that Ruth is cared for. So Naomi does work up a plan. She says, hey, this is what you need to do. Uh, the farmers, at the end of the day, they're gonna go to sleep on the threshing room floor. And what you should do is go to Boaz where he's laying, lay down at his feet and then cover yourself with his blanket and, or with his, with his robe, basically. And, and then when he wakes up, ask him if he'll be our kinsman redeemer, right? But here's the thing, like even within this plan, understand that Naomi and Ruth they're not doing something underhanded. They're not trying to trap Boaz into this role as kinsman redeemer. It's completely up to Boaz as to whether or not he wants to fulfill that commitment, okay? So Boaz, Ruth does exactly what Naomi said. She goes, she sleeps at Boaz's feet. Boaz wakes up. He's shocked to see a woman at his feet. Who is this? You know, and she says, oh, it's me. It's Ruth, the Moabites. And he, she says, hey, can you be our kinsman redeemer? And Boaz says, well, I could, but there's one other man in line before me. Let me ask him. If he says no, then I'll do it, right? So he loads Ruth up with food again, sends her home to Naomi. Ruth goes home to Naomi and Naomi says, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Because Boaz, I told you his name means strength. Well, it also means swift. And Boaz is true to his name as well. He's a man of swift and strong character, right? So Boaz is true to his word. In chapter four, he goes immediately to the town gates early in the morning. He meets the man that's next in line to be the kinsman redeemer for Naomi or for Elimelech's clan, right? And they work out a deal so that Boaz actually can be that kinsman redeemer. The whole city approves, you know, they, they say this is Cool. Boaz goes through with his commitment to marry Ruth and a child is born. When the child is born, we see this like air of festivity almost as the women are celebrating Ruth and, and the blessing that she's been to Naomi. They say, Naomi's been more valuable to you than, or Ruth has been more valuable to you than seven sons, right? And then at the end of this chapter, we're again hit with this, these verses that are kind of a glimmer or a statement of hope. But this time it's a little different because it's actually in the form of a genealogy, okay? So we've got 10 names here, starting with Perez, you know, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, Nashon, Salmon. Then we see Boaz, fourth from the bottom. Obed, that's the son of, of uh, Ruth and Boaz. Then we see Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. David, one of the greatest kings of Israel. So now we've come to the end of this book of Ruth. And, and I wanna zoom in on one particular part of the story, because I think like as beautiful of a story as Ruth is, uh, there's always like one part uh, within an impactful story that, that's called an, in, an inciting incident. And it's important that we know what the inciting incident, incident is in this story. An incident, an inciting incident is defined as the event within a story that sets the main character or characters on the journey that will occupy them throughout the narrative. So I believe that this key inciting incident in the story of Ruth takes place on that highway when they start to head back to Bethlehem. It's part of that conversation between Naomi and Ruth. So let's look really closely at that sequence of events. 
In verse seven of chapter one, we see Naomi and her daughters hit the road. And Naomi tries to send them away in verse eight. This is what she says. She says, go back each of you to your mother's home. So to paraphrase this, Naomi is simply saying, your former way of life awaits, okay? And then in verses 11 through 13, she issues a second challenge, right? She says, look, I'm not gonna have more sons. I'm too old to have another husband. You wouldn't wait for my sons to grow up even if I did have them. Then there's that verse 13 that we read earlier. No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. So Naomi, to paraphrase her here, she's saying, hey, this is a difficult path. Take the easy way. You've seen the difficulty in my own life. So Orpah, this is where she turns and she returns to her family. But Ruth clings to Naomi, right? And Naomi tries one more time to convince her. She says, look, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. And this time, Naomi is saying, look, what you're doing is not a popular decision. You're gonna stand out. You'll be the only one. Uh, Your friends or your family are literally, they're headed in the opposite direction. What you're doing is countercultural. We've heard that phrase a few times. That means you're not doing what everybody else is doing. You're bucking the trend here, Ruth, right? But in verse 16, we see where Ruth makes her promise to Naomi, right? She promises to go where she'll go and stay where she'll stay. She makes her promise to her people, your people will be my people, and to her God, that's the highest of the three, um, your God will be my God. So looking at this sequence of events, this is where I feel like the inciting incident takes place. Uh, Naomi in verse 13 says, the Lord's hand has turned against me. In verse 14, Ruth clings to her. And then two verses later, Ruth's words are, your God will be my God. So Ruth right here is in effect saying, that God whose hand has turned against you, right? I wanna follow that God. So Ruth is giving a positive response to what has to be one of the worst altar calls in the history of the world, right? She's literally been told that the Lord's hand is turned against me. And she turns around and goes, yeah, you know what? I I think I want some of that. I I think I wanna follow that God. You know, so I thought, what, what did she see? What is it? What did she see that gave her the confidence or the desire, right? To make this decision. Well, we just have to look at what we know. And what we know is this, Ruth had lived with Naomi, right? She saw how Naomi lived through the death of her own husband. And then she was witness to, and she was recipient of the love and the care that Naomi Uh, showed her and Orpah through the deaths of their husbands, her sons, right? Ruth saw that even in Naomi's distress, Naomi knew that she was a chosen one of God. She knew that she was one of his children, right? She may not have liked the way that she was being treated, but she didn't doubt for a moment that she was one of God's chosen people. In these acts, Ruth also saw God's faithfulness. And eventually she saw that Naomi was returning to Bethlehem fully confident in God's provision, So Ruth saw all this and she wanted to be a part of it so desperately that she clung to Naomi. Ruth overcame all three of Naomi's protests. Those protests were your formal way of life awaits, right? This way of life will be difficult and this is not a popular decision. Your friends and your family are headed in the opposite direction. And Ruth responded to these three protests with a promise or an oath that actually contains three commitments, all right? First, there was that commitment to Naomi. 
Where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. And then a little later, where you'll die, I'll die. And then second, there's that commitment to her people. Your people will be my people. And then her third commitment that she makes is to her God. Your God will be my God. And Ruth even declares and, and, that these are lifelong commitments when she says, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So it's in Ruth's sticking, it's it, to her faithfulness, to these commitments that all the rest of the book of Ruth happens. So this promise is actually the inciting incident for the book of Ruth. Every action we see from Ruth from this moment forward, right? It's a fulfillment of, or it points back to that promise that she made. And, and I'm positive that Ruth, she didn't see any of her actions as out of the ordinary. If you look at her actions, look at what she did. She, she lived up to her commitment. She did what she had to in order to ensure that Naomi was taken care of, that she was fed. She gathered grain in the fields. She w- went where Naomi said to go. She literally laid down to sleep where Naomi said to lay down and sleep. Uh, all, every one of these actions was very ordinary, but they flowed from Ruth's faithfulness to the commitments that she made. So now we've looked at that inciting incident. Let's pull back out and look at this whole story of Ruth, right? The book of Ruth as a whole. What's really remarkable about this story and the fact that it's included within the biblical context is the lack of the miraculous that we see within it, right? We don't see like a ton of supernatural stuff happening in the book of Ruth. We don't see a special dream or a vision. We don't see a hand coming down and writing on the wall. You know, we don't see him closing the mouths of lions. We don't see when they were headed back to Bethlehem, like this column of smoke or this, this cloud of smoke to follow by day or, or this column of fire to follow by night, right? Instead, we just see these everyday actions that Ruth takes flowing from what, what's really an extraordinary commitment that she made. And despite the lacks, the, that complete lack of signs or miracles that we may see, like I said earlier, God's hand can be seen throughout this awesome story, right? We can see it where, where this story starts in famine, it ends in festivity. It uh, speaks of God's justice and his mercy, his generosity, as, he, as he's provided care for the widow and he's provided care for the foreigner, right? It also teaches the importance of reliance on God for his provision. It speaks to the importance of community and the faithfulness of God's people as a community. It speaks of the importance of identity It even foreshadows Jesus's role as our redeemer. But at its heart, the book of Ruth, really, it shows us how God honored the commitment and the faithfulness of Ruth, an outsider, right? A member of this despised nation. And he worked through her commitment. He used it as an inciting incident to accomplish his greater purposes. He picked up the threads that were just those lives of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, and he wove them together into this greater tapestry that really is this bigger story that's the story of God and us. And then speaking of that bigger story, remember those biblical covenants that I mentioned earlier? Well, let's go ahead, okay. Now, when the story of Ruth takes place, the Israelites were actually subject to, or they were participating within three of these covenants, right? The covenant with Moses, the covenant with Abraham, and the covenant with Noah, all right? We've talked a lot about the covenants with Moses and Abraham throughout this story, right? Now, we also saw, though, that list of 10 names. Remember I said it had like a glimmer of hope? Well, that last name was David. 
That's the same David, that's King David. So Ruth ends up being the great-great-grandmother, great-grandmother of David in that, right? Four generations, whatever that is. So, so we see how Ruth provides like a string that goes from Moses to David, right? But then also, this is wild, those same 10 names that were on the screen earlier are found in two places in the New Testament. They're found in the book of Matthew and in the book of Luke, in both genealogies of Jesus Christ. So Ruth, the outsider, the outcast, the person from the despised nation, her story actually becomes a thread woven into this greater tapestry that actually includes also this new covenant, right? She's an ever so great grandmother of Jesus Christ himself. So when I mentioned this new covenant, I mentioned that it was found in Jeremiah chapter 31. In Jeremiah 31, it says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I'll remember their sins no more. That's what it says in Jeremiah. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that Jesus Christ is actually the mediator of this new covenant. What that means is that it's through him, through faith in him, that this new covenant is brought about. See, God in his grace has already initiated a covenant between him and us and me and you. In his grace, God has already come down to the altar and he's already made promises, right? We haven't even committed yet. He's come to the, offer, he's come to the altar and he's made these promises. And these promises are really similar to the ones that we saw Ruth make to Naomi. He says, they're the reverse in order. It says, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I will have a personal relationship with you. And then his vows go even further, right? He's through, he says, through my son, I'll forgive your wickedness. I'll forget your sins. My spirit will live in you. My word will be in your mind and it'll be literally written on your heart. And there's this quote that I love from Warren Wearsby. And what it says is, we're not saved by making promises to God. We're saved by believing God's promises to us. And Jesus Christ is God's greatest promise to us. If you're not currently a follower of Jesus Christ, then I ask you to enter into this new covenant with God today, right? You do this by believing in him, by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. But remember this, your former way of life, it does await, right? The life of a Christ follower is not an easy one. You know, um, you, it's not a popular decision to follow Christ. It's countercultural. Your friends, your family may be literally headed in the opposite direction. They may think you're foolish for making this decision. But there's a lot of people in this room and there's a lot of people that are joining us online that will agree that it's worth it. If you're ready to make that decision, please do. Please become part of God's family. Become part of that bigger story, that story of him and us. There's a couple ways you can do that. Uh, if you're joining us online, you can text the word now to us at 812-858-8668, okay? If you're here in the room, when you're done, come down to the altar. I've already told you, God is there. God has made his promises. Come down and commit your life to him, all right? There'll be a few of us down here from our care team. I'll be down here as well. We would love to speak with you, to pray with you about what that commitment looks like, what it means to believe in Jesus Christ, to place your faith in him. 
Now, for those of us that already follow Jesus Christ, what would it look like to us if we modeled our commitments off those same commitments that Ruth made to Naomi, right? What if we commit to going where God says to go? What if we were to commit to staying where he says to stay? That's obedience. That's what they talked about during the worship portion of our service today earlier. That's obedience, right? Go where he says to go, stay where he says to stay. What if we committed to making his people our people? This is a commitment to community. This is a commitment to the church. This isn't just going to church. This is actually integrating your life with the lives of the people that are here with you today. Whether you're online or whether you're here in the room, it, it's, that's not an easy thing, right? But that's what is, that's part of our faithfulness to God is to make his people our people, to integrate our lives fully with those people around us, whether it's through small group, whether it's through serving together, whatever that looks like, make that commitment as well. And of course, our commitment must also include that God is our only God. We can place no other gods before him. We can't chase after or worship any other person or thing in his place. Now, if we were to truly model our lives off of what Ruth's commitment to Naomi, all of our actions would flow from this point of commitment and point back to that same commitment, right? And that's what faithfulness is. What's really amazing about this, and I've said this already, is that these promises really match those that God's already made to us. We don't do this in our own strength, right? Like Warren Wearsby said, we need to believe in God's promises. We're not saved by our promises to him. We're saved by his promise to us. But with God's Holy Spirit living within us and with his church, with our community surrounding us, like we are uniquely enabled to live a life in line with our commitment. Uh, I think that when we do, then just like Ruth, people see our actions. They'll be inspired to become part of this community, to become part of God's church, his kingdom, right? There'll be cause for celebration as his family expands. Our family, really our community and our nation, you know, our, the entire world will be blessed through us by him, all right? We really do serve a faithful God. That's what this series has been about. Uh, God works through the faithfulness of his people. He works through our seemingly insignificant, these, these little daily tasks, our everyday tasks, our interactions, right? To accomplish his will in this world. And that's what living and loving like Jesus is all about. 